By now, you've heard about Global Poker, one of the fastest growing online card rooms available in the US and Canada today. So what's stopping you from trying it out? Global Poker is a safe and secure social poker site that uses their own patented sweepstakes model. Signing up is easy. You can use Google, Facebook, or just an email address. You can always play for free on Global Poker, but you can also buy gold coins for additional play, which will earn sweeps coins that can be redeemed for real cash to a bank account, Skrill account, or even as a gift card. Get a free 5,000 gold coins when you sign up right now at GlobalPoker.com. Poker Stories is an audio series that features casual interviews with some of the game's best players and personalities. Each episode highlights a well-known figure in the poker world and dives deep into their favorite tales, both on and off the felt. Hello and welcome back to Poker Stories, a podcast brought to you by Card Player, the Poker Authority, and hosted by me, Julio Rodriguez. This is episode number 121, and it features Mike Watson. Mike is 37 years old, and he is originally from St. John's in Newfoundland, Canada, and now lives in Toronto. He found poker while in college at the University of Waterloo, where he went to school with the likes of Steve Paul Ambrose, Mike McDonald, and a few other future high-stakes poker pros. Mike broke out on the live tournament scene in 2008 when he won the World Poker Tour Bellagio Cup main event for nearly $1.7 million. He's had many wins and big final table finishes in the years since, making his mark on the high roller circuit and on numerous tours. In fact, Mike would be considered a triple crown winner if it wasn't for a technicality. He earned a European Poker Tour title in 2016, taking down the PokerStars Caribbean Adventure main event for $728,000. And he also picked up two wins at the World Series of Poker. In 2011, he won a six-max no-limit side event at the WSOP Europe for $140,000. Unfortunately, that event did not come with a bracelet. Incredibly, the next year he returned to the WSOP Europe and won a 50,000 euro buy-in high roller event for another 1.3 million dollars. And again, no bracelet. So although he doesn't have an official triple crown winner status, he has managed to rack up more than 12.5 million on the live circuit over the last 15 years. In the last couple of years, he's been concentrating more online, bringing his online totals to nearly 10 million dollars. As a result, he is now Canada's top-ranked online player, according to Pocket Fives, moving as high as third worldwide earlier this year. Anyway, that's enough intro. Here is my conversation with Mike Watson. All right, I'm here with Mike Watson. I guess the first thing I should say is congratulations. Uh, you got married recently. Yeah, I did. Thank you. Yeah. So, so what was that? I mean, obviously, the timing of the pandemic it probably put a... A, a damper on on things for a while how did that all uh, shake out yeah so we we're planning to do the wedding fall 2020 um and obviously that wasn't really possible uh especially since you know we were doing a destination wedding in greece so uh we got legally married just here in toronto like about a year ago and then we did the actual wedding, the party on our first anniversary just a few weeks ago. 
Everything That's awesome. Without a hitch was great. Yeah, we're really, really happy with, you know, finally being able to do that and see so many people, so many of our, you know, closest friends, family. It was, it was amazing. Yeah, and I bet when you planned all this, you didn't think that fall was going to be the hot poker season, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, at the time, it was like, okay, great, October, end of September, like, it should be a nice, quiet time. All the poker players will be able to come. Uh, ended up working out <laughs> fine, but it wasn't quite... Uh, wasn't quite exactly how we envisioned it with the poker schedule. Awesome. Well, I'm glad uh, you were able to get it done, especially uh, make it official in front of the friends and family. Um, but on this show, we like to go back to the beginning. So we're going to go explore your origin story in uh, Newfoundland, Newfoundland. How do you pronounce it? Newfoundland. Yeah. Newfoundland. Okay. So for my uh, ignorant Americans who are listening, this is the province that is way the hell up there in the Northeast um, of Canada. And uh, can you tell me what life was like growing up there? Yeah, so I grew up in St. John's, which is the capital, maybe 80, 90,000 people. Um, you know, the furthest, uh, most easterly point in North America, uh, the city of St. John's. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was just a really, you know, Nice place to grow up. I think, uh, you know, not too big a city, but a little bit more slow paced, very friendly people. Um, really, you know, really loved growing up there. Um, and then when I graduated high school, I... But what, uh, what were your interests? I mean, like, I, I think people would, would imagine it's just a fishing uh, situation over there. You know, your parents were professors. So... That's right, I'm, yeah. I'm assuming you were a very studious child. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Newfoundland was, you know, its economy largely was based on the fishery. That changed a lot uh, as I was a kid, as, you know, the, some of the fisheries were shut down due to overfishing and things. It was not a, not a great time for the province overall. Um, but, yeah, for me, my parents were both university professors. So certainly academics uh, were, you know, very important in my family. Uh, and, you know, we also family, we're a family that like to play games. So, you know, growing up, I, I played chess, uh, competitively. I played a little bit of Magic the Gathering. Um, you know, was big into, uh, math contests and things of that nature, which, uh, ended up being my undergraduate was in math. Um, so yeah, I mean, a lot of, played a lot of sports as well. I definitely had the kind of like academic and like competitive background that I think made poker a little bit more of a natural fit for me well obviously at the time you're in high school you're not thinking about poker as a career what was your ambition uh yeah i mean in high school i didn't even know poker existed basically <laughs> right yeah, well, we're the, I, I, I think played, we're the same age right you're 36 yeah, 37 right, yeah i'm 37 now born 84 uh, yeah, I mean, I, I played a couple hands of like five card draw or something with my ba- with my babysitter maybe when I was you know <laughs> super young, but uh, didn't really know anything about poker, um, and so yeah, obviously that was not what I was thinking I would be doing, or probably not what my parents would have uh, chosen if it was their choice. Uh, I was looking. I didn't say I had like a particularly strong plan. I just really enjoyed doing math and some sciences, so. My plan was, you know, I was pretty set that I was going to go do my undergraduate in math and then, you know, figure it out, maybe follow in my in my father's footsteps and, you know, go the academic route, be a math professor or perhaps look for, you know, something where I could apply those skills in 
in the industry or business somewhere, but I didn't really have anything specific in mind at all. Just kind yeah, your of, Twitter uh, your Twitter bio says that you're a math nerd. Um, what was there a particular yeah. area of mathematics that you excelled at or were interested in? Yes, my degree was in uh, pure mathematics, uh, more from like the theoretical side, not as applied, which is actually not as useful for poker, but it certainly teaches you how to, you know, think very logically and rigorously about things. Um, and so, yeah, I, uh, I was more into uh, algebra, combinatorics, which actually does help quite a lot with poker, uh, and then less so into maybe the calculus and the statistics and, the analy- you know, the anal- analysis side of, uh, of pure math. I really like the, uh, yeah, more of the algebra and combinatorics. I was kind of looking to maybe do something in that area, number theory as well. Um, but then I ended up doing a master's in cryptography or trying to do a master's in cryptography, but this was around the same time that I was getting into poker. Right, so I never right. ended up finishing it. But that was much more of an applied, like, computer discipline, a um, bit more relevant maybe to, to real-world applications. Um, but maybe not something that I realized that I was maybe not quite as passionate about. I'm wondering where do you stand on the nature versus nurture situation you, you have for yourself? You're obviously your parents sound brilliant. Uh, you know, are, did, did this stuff come naturally to you, do you think? Or do you, were you, uh, yeah, it's hard to, I mean, it's obviously hard for me to really say. I certainly you know, suspect or believe that I likely, you know, was uh, the benefit of having some good genes. Um, you know, certainly having two very successful academically parents, I have to imagine that I, you know, was just born with some advantages in certain areas. But I also think, you know, a lot of it, you know, just the home that I grew up in as well, like they were very... Um, always like looking to like teach me little things you know there's lots so many things that I learned at home from my parents like well before you know most people learned them in school as a kid you know I was already you know doing whatever like basic or even not that basic arithmetic when I was like five six years old when a lot of you know people probably weren't really being exposed to that and that much at all yet um so I definitely think it's a little bit of both in my case. I was very, very, like, good student. You know, like, my school was very important to me. Uh, getting good grades was something that I definitely understood was valued. And, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to say, you know, for sure how much of each thing was what led to my success in that area, but I have to imagine I had some, some advantages in, in, both, uh, in both ways. I'm wondering, uh, do your parents have any gamble in them? Not a lot of gamble in them, no. Although my dad was a pretty serious um, bridge player when he was like a university-aged uh, student. He uh, So I guess playing cards maybe runs in the family, you could say. I think he always said that, you know, if, if he could have made a living, you know, like I was able to playing poker by playing bridge, then that's probably what he would have done. But the opportunities just didn't exist back then. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, so did your parents teach at the University of Waterloo where you went to school? No, they were both at Memorial in uh, in Newfoundland in St. John's. Okay, 
So you yeah. left home, and it just so turns out that you were going to the University of Waterloo, which for those that don't know, their mascot is the poker player, right? Uh, basically, it's just a, a, a factory for churning out high-stakes poker players, <laughs> um, which, you know, I guess was a lot of universities at the time, but especially so there. What was your exposure to poker there, and uh, how did you find yourself getting hooked? Yeah, so I originally found poker uh, when I was back in Newfoundland in the summer. So I think it was after maybe my third year. I had some kind of research grant at Memorial because I wanted to come home and see my friends and you know play baseball. I was still doing at the time um, in the local league, and uh, so I was coming back to the you know do some research at the university for the summers at that point. And uh, this group of my friends some I went to high school with, some new people in the math department there that, you know, we ended up playing just a fun game for a few bucks or whatever over lunchtime. And then, you know, sometimes maybe when we were supposed to do, be doing some other things as well uh, throughout the day. And uh, it just really, you know, naturally I took to it. I was always a, a competitive, like, games-playing person. Uh, it started, you know, this was when poker started being on TV. So seeing, you know, the World Series of Poker Final Table... Uh, it's very, you know, I guess inspiring. Uh, it really, I think, you know, captivated the way me the way that poker captivated so many people in that time. And so from those games, I found out about online poker and started, you know, I deposited a small amount of money and started playing a little bit online, uh, really small stakes. And, you know, it wasn't super successful right away, but after, you know, losing my, my 50 bucks a couple times or whatever, I started reading a bit, started picking up some books and just decided, okay, I'm going to do one more, you know, $100 deposit online. And if I bust this one, then I have to give this up because I can't, you know, be one of these, these loser gambler people. Um, so I took it, you know, very slow and steady, very small stakes on that and was able to kind of start to learn the game a little bit and have some success. Uh, I wouldn't say I was the most natural gifted player back then, but uh, I was very stubborn and I stuck with it and started to started to learn and started to succeed. Now, uh, the story goes that you met Steve Paul Ambrose and Mike McDonald in college. And um, I mean, we, I, I'm not sh I'm sure if you guys were just running together or just bouncing ideas off of each other. How did that work? Yeah, so after Steve won the PCA main event, uh, both Mike McDonald and I, independently of each other, had just like messaged him on, on 2 plus 2 on the poker forum, you know, just telling him congrats and just saying, you know, I'm also at Waterloo. Like, be cool. Oh, to hang that's out cool. <laughs> yeah. That's a bold um, move. Right, right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, Steve was just, you know, such a nice guy. You know, just met him, you know, whatever, for, at lunch one day or something. And I uh, just got to talking, and he said, oh, you know, like, me and a couple friends, we play Sunday tournaments in my basement. Like, you can come over sometime and hang out and play with us if you want, right? Um, and so then that became sort of like the, the every weekend you know, Sunday thing for us. I'd go with, play with Steve and Mike and uh, Steve's other friend, Aaron, usually the group of us, sometimes a couple other people. But uh, yeah, we'd just, you know, go play the whole 
Sunday tournament schedule or as much as I could afford back then. And uh, that was a big, big part where I learned a lot, you know, just talking about the game, discussing hands with people in person. Uh, I think it just really, you know, I really increased the rate at which I improved at the game. And I think just gave me a lot of confidence as well to think like, okay, you know, these guys that are really successful, like, doesn't seem like they know some like crazy secret thing or have some you know like they have right. a little bit more maybe natural aptitude for the game than i do but it's nothing like that i can't overcome just through putting in the work you know like i there's nothing like they're doing that i can't learn to do i don't think right um, once you realize that it's not everybody is Stu Unger and just has a natural card like you, it's it's learnable it's it's a it's a kind of a eureka moment for poker players yeah yeah so just being around them and seeing like okay like there's nothing like weird or magical that I just can't comprehend going on here. Like these are all, you know, like I'm okay and I'm getting better and, and I can, I can learn to do this. Like I think I can, you know, potentially have similar types of successes as these guys are having. Uh, there's another uh, WPT champion um, who went to the university of Waterloo. Did you know at the time or play with Nanad medic? I think he was on the basketball team for Waterloo. Uh, I knew of him, but it wasn't, uh, I think, I think he was a few years older than me. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I'd never met Nanad, uh, in Waterloo at all, but I did sort of, yeah, know who he was and was aware that he had gone to Waterloo at some point. This was a crazy factory guys. I mean, um, Chamath Palihapitaya, right? The guy who, um, helped, uh, co-found Facebook, and also owns one of Phil Helmuth's bracelets, believe it or not. Uh, he went to the University of Waterloo. Schwan Lu. Uh, then you had people, I think, maybe just lived in Waterloo. Glenn Chorney, Scott Montgomery, and Matt Kay. Was, I mean, the home games must have been fun. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we didn't uh, waste too much time playing home games against each other. But, uh, yeah, it was fun. Matt, Matt Kay, for sure, was a guy that... Uh, I met through through Mike through Timex. Um, he was around quite a bit, and then yeah, the other guys. I mean, it wasn't as wasn't quite as friendly. I did play in uh, Shwan Lu's home game when I was in like fourth year university or something. Uh, she used to run like a small stakes game in her like college house or whatever. Uh, so that was that was funny. Uh, so yeah. so you're in grad school and basically poker's taking over. You're thinking I could do this for a living. Uh, do you remember, like, the that moment when it hit? Was it like a, a particular score that you hit where you thought, okay, now I have what I need to take off? Yeah, uh, it really was. I mean, I think the big moment for me was probably after my second year in grad school, my master's. I mean, I'm supposed to be done by now. I'm supposed to have been done long ago. I'm just not getting any work done on it. I'm trying to cut poker out and and focus on that, but it's just not really it's just not really happening. I'm not that into it. Um, and you know, I had made a pretty like decent amount of money, like maybe mid mid to high five figures or something maybe at that point. So I had enough money that I thought I could potentially make a go at it at that point. And uh yeah, I just kind of, you know, finished this year and I was like, well, I don't know, like, I was pretty upset that I hadn't succeeded because it was the first time I'd ever really failed at anything academically in my life. Um, but at the same time, I, I had always, I'd been pretty confident for maybe six months or a year at that point that, like, 
when I finish here, like I'm not going to do a PhD, like I'm not going to continue on. I'm, I'm going to give poker a shot. Um, and so then after that year, I decided, well, you know, I'm going to stick this out and try to like finish this, you know, graduate degree or do I just move on? And uh, I actually you know, had a really good conversation with my mother at that point, and she was uh, she was very um, like on my side. She really was encouraging and said, you know, if you want to do this poker thing and you you think you can do it, like you know, me and my father, like we trust you um, if that's what you really want to do. And uh, that you know really gave me a lot of confidence to say, okay, like this is kind of obviously like what I want to do and now I can go ahead and pursue it and not, you know, feel too guilty about it or not, you know, have regrets. Yeah. I mean, especially given her, you know, position as a professor, you'd, you'd think she'd want you to stick it out, especially after, but you know, um, smart people understand the sun, the sunk cost fallacy, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Yeah. Probably an easier sell to them. Um, so, uh, were there any initial struggles when you turned pro where, where you thought, okay, maybe I made the wrong decision. Maybe I should go back to academia. Uh, no, not really at that point in my career. I don't think I had any, any huge struggles. I had definitely had a number getting to that point, you know, where I'd lost maybe 70, 80% of my bankroll at some point, just over, you know, a stretch of losing tournaments, whatever. Um, nothing too crazy, probably, if you were to crunch the numbers, but hmm. that happened. And then, but then, you know, I finally did hit a couple, a couple first places and, and ran it back up to what it was, um, to where, you know, I was reasonably comfortable. Um, but yeah, I think after I turned pro, I think things went pretty well. I was playing a mix of cash games and tournaments at that point in time. And I think the first month after I turned pro, I was playing just some, I think it was like the cake poker or something was, was the thing back then around hmm. that time. I was playing in these really soft cash games and just had like a, a huge month, like one like, you know, 40 or 50 buy-ins or something um, over like a month or two. And then that was, that was huge. I mean, then I was like much better off. Uh, financially at that point like I, I really had a solid bankroll where I could start to to take a few more shots at live tournaments uh and at some of the higher stakes things online without feeling you know uncomfortable about it uh so that's around the time basically I guess where I started traveling a little bit more you've always maintained kind of like a 50 50 split between traveling and playing online at home um I'm wondering how much cash games stuck around in the mix. I'm, I mean, I recently you described yourself as a tournament player, uh, but I'm, I assume every once in a while you jump into a cash. Yeah, um, they slowly started to fade out. Uh, there was some. I played, you know, Omaha PLO cash for a little while as well. Um, but you know, all, all these cash games, especially at the higher stakes, they just got very competitive very quickly, and on a, I just wasn't really like the best, you know, the top player or whatever there at that point in time. Um, I was still a bit behind uh, a lot of the other pros in those games, probably. And so as the games got more competitive, um, you know, it, it just didn't seem to make sense anymore. 
to uh, to be spending a lot of time playing games that were very tough and when the tournaments were, you know, so much more fun and I think so much more profitable probably in the long run. Uh, so I really did, you know, maybe within six months, a year or something after going pro, uh, I'd say I was playing like not very much cash or like almost no hold'em cash. I was playing some PLO, trying to learn that game, playing a lot of mid-stakes PLO, but definitely uh, no limit hold'em cash online was something that unfortunately did phase out uh, pretty quickly in my in my game selection. Well, I assume also coming from a competitive background, you know, it's nice to have a winner in a tournament. Whereas a cash game, you know, there's there's no set winner. No one gets a photo at the end with a trophy. And I, I'm sure the that aspect of tournament poker appealed to you. Yeah, I mean, it's just the same way that it appeals to everyone, being able to, you know, put in that small amount of money and have that huge score. Um, there's nothing, you know, cash games, they're great. You go in, you play, you try to make sure that you play your best every day, and some days you win, some days you lose, and, you know, you lose a a little bit less often than you win, and it's great. But you never have, like, a that many, like, huge, crazy days where you win a ton of money. Um, right. Whereas, yeah, with the tournaments, I mean, for sure, that whole... There was nothing that really kind of got the the blood going, got the, you know, the juices flowing the way that being at, like, a big final table did. Right? Like, well, let's, let's talk about those big final tables and go through the highlights. Um, the first one was, you know, pretty early in your career, 2008. It was a summer saver. The Bellagio Cup main event, 15K, you won it for almost $1.7 million. Um, can you talk about that and how it changed your life? Yeah, I mean, obviously that was a complete, you know, game-changer, life-changing money for me. Um, but I think every year that goes by, I, I realize, like, I didn't fully appreciate just how how much of a life-changer that was. Um, you know, the amount of money was just, you know, many multiples of my, my bankroll at that point in time when I won. And, uh, you know, I, I was just trying to get my first big live score, really, at that point. Um, you know, if, if I'd won, say, half a million dollars in, for first place in a tournament, I would have probably been, like, just as happy as I was, as I was winning 1.7. Like, I, I couldn't really comprehend the difference, right. you know? Um, like, to to this day, that's my biggest score in any live tournament including you know super high rollers and things um where you know, i don't have as many super big results but you know it, it's it was just crazy like how big the tournaments were that back then uh i i didn't really i didn't really appreciate it i don't think until like many years later or just kind of like you know this was just like a completely outrageous amount of, of money to win you know like to, at such a an early stage in my career it felt like I'd, you know, worked, played so much, worked so hard to get to that point, and it was finally the payoff. But, you know, in retrospect, it's obviously just like, wow, I got so lucky so early in my career to just, like, be that guy who had, you know, the huge World Poker Tour win uh, in, like, his second year playing live tournaments. Like, you know, I've, I've only ever won a couple other main events, I guess, over the course of, you know, 15 years, whatever it's been now. And... uh you know, just to have that one so early, it, it completely changed everything. We have a question here. Uh, what was your biggest splur- uh, biggest splurge after a tournament win? Did you ever treat yourself? <laughs> I wasn't the type to go too crazy on the splurging, no. Um, 
Not at all. I mean, yeah, I bought a, I bought a condo in Toronto. That was the big thing that I spent money on. Um, but no, in terms of splurges, I don't know. Yeah, just a few nights out. <laughs> a reasonable party, condo yeah. with with a strong Wi-Fi signal. <laughs> that, yeah, that was yeah. that's what you were going for. Yeah, nice, nice condo, excellent Wi-Fi. Yeah, very, very important for sure. No, no fancy watch or car. No, I bought a very reasonable car. Uh, not fancy <laughs> at all. Um, yeah, no, very, no, very uh, no Bryn Kenny wardrobe choices. I remember there was a a summer. It might have been that summer where you lived with Tony Dunst. Uh, there was no yep. like suit. There was no like suit shopping spree. <laughs> <laughs> no, the suits, uh, he never got me into the suit thing. I mean, I bought some nice suits since then for, for weddings and things like that, but that wasn't something where I went out and said, okay, I need to be buying, you know. I definitely, my wardrobe got better over the years. Some of that <laughs> certainly was spending the money, and some of that was just maybe paying a little bit more attention to that sort of thing where I hadn't really when I was younger. Um, but, yeah, I didn't really have any super crazy reckless purchases, you know. Definitely, uh you know, some some good fun trips, parties, whatever, here and there, but no, like, individual thing where you're like, wow, that was a, a crazy, stupid purchase. So the bankrolls obviously swelled nicely. Uh, does that make you play better or worse, or how, how does it affect you? I would say in the short term, probably a little bit better. Uh, confidence was high. That never, that never hurts, especially when you're uh still kind of you know getting a little bit more experienced in the live scene which i still was at that point in time uh but in the long run i don't know maybe maybe worse because it it did i think to some extent take away some of that hunger to to really grind to really work super hard when you'd already kind of achieved more than you ever sort of let yourself really dream that you you could uh so early on i think that you know the, the mid stages of my career probably would have gone better if I hadn't been quite so successful so early. Got it, got it. Uh, um, was there a moment where you thought, I got to go back into the lab and reevaluate? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's happened a lot, I think, over the last, you know, five, ten years, um, especially the last five years, I guess I would say. Uh, I very much realized that I had fallen behind. I mean, this happened again probably after like maybe you know five years after that win like maybe 2013 i realized you know i'm just not uh not playing as well i'm falling behind like you know you, you have all the success and you kind of just think like the way i play right now is is the way to play like i don't have that much left to learn and your game gets stagnant uh so that yeah that happened a number of times where i like very clearly realized like oh no like you're just not you're just not playing well enough you know and you hit one of those stretches of bad luck and you kind of realize well this is just one of those bad runs that happens but then it makes you sort of really reassess as well at that point and say okay well we need to be really confident that this isn't just that this is just bad luck and i'm not just getting outplayed because it's been a tough stretch and uh yeah a few times when i went in and did that self-assessment took a more serious look at you know how i was playing and how friends and other people around me were playing, I realized, you know, like, I've, I've just fallen behind. People have been working hard, getting better, and I'm still playing, like, really basic level poker that, you know, worked fine in 2008, but as your opponents become more sophisticated, 
that's not going to cut it anymore. Um, so definitely, I can remember, yeah, I went on a really like crazy run where I like didn't cash any World Series events for a couple of years in a row. And, um, you know, certainly something like that has to be mostly bad luck, but I definitely didn't feel like I played particularly well over a lot of that time. Uh, and then, but I was always lucky, I think, to have a good peer group of people around who, you know, I could sort of rely on to uh, talk hands with and get me back to where I needed to be. Um, were you an early solver adapter? Uh, no, not really. I was uh, definitely late to the solver game, but it's something that I I really uh, I really like because it kind of brought together I think the more analytical side, you know the just yeah I think uh, like the, the more academic it reminded me a little bit more of that of just uh, doing like serious study working in the way that you did when you were a student kind of. Mm. Um, and I like the idea of, you know, finally being able to, like, not, like, solve the game, but, like, play on a very highly technical level and know that you're playing sort of as well as possible. You know, in the past, there's a lot of guesswork when you're a poker player. You're just kind of, you're out there, you're trying to figure things out the best you can, you talk to your peer group, whatever. Um, but you don't really know for sure if the things you're doing are right. You know, like, you can sort of think them through and logic it out and, you're probably going to come to some really good conclusions if you're diligent about it, but, you know, working in a situation where, you know, you have a tough hand, you can just say, okay, well, let's, you know, put this in the computer and, and find out what the answer was. That really changes the way you think and the way you, you study about the game. And I like that. I like the idea of being able to hopefully one day say, okay, like, I'm I'm really an expert at this, like, and I, and I can prove it, you know, like, I have... <laughs> It's crazy you couldn't say that before, but I I understand what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Um we we have a question here. Uh what what was a close call uh that you know you that keeps you up at night? One that you really um regret maybe a play or two that got away? Was there a final table where you, you thought um you should have maybe taken it down and you didn't? I mean, yeah, there's there's so many of those, I think, throughout every poker career. Um, I do feel like the last few years I've had a few where I have made uh, mistakes late in tournaments that ended up being very costly. Um, you know, whether um, yeah, whether it was just being, you know, too too reckless or, or missing you know, a spot was the opposite, uh, where, you know, I had a chance maybe to make a big call or to make a big play that would have worked. Uh, there's always There's always things like that, I think, and Definitely, I would say the last few years and some of the, the bigger high stakes Triton tournaments and stuff, I, I've had a few chances where, I, you know, I had big stacks and it just it just didn't work out. And that's been really frustrating because I'm still looking to sort of pad my resume in, in the highest stakes tournaments in the high roller streets. And that uh, that has kind of eluded me. And that's the one more thing from a tournament perspective that I, I would really like to have on my resume. Uh, so there's definitely a handful of things there. Well, I'm but, seeing quite a bit of uh, high roller success on your resume. <laughs> uh, maybe I have, a, I have a little bit, but yeah. <laughs> the first one obviously is uh, October 2012. You went to World Series of Poker Europe. You played the high roller there, and you won it for 1.3 million dollars. 
Of course, for some strange reason, they didn't give you a bracelet, um, even though it was a World Series of Poker Europe event. Um, but still, $1.3 is nice, and I'm sure the field there was of the high roller ilk. It was, yeah. That was probably one of the first ones I'd played, or at least one of the only ones I'd played in some time. And it was one of those tournaments that I wasn't even really like planning to play. You know, I wasn't really playing the super high rollers at that point in time that much or maybe at all. Um, but, you know, I was there and I'd had some success on that trip and, uh, you know, the field looked really good. So I ended up selling some action and getting in there really late and just things just all started going my way basically from the time I sat down. The guy like doubled up with aces on the literal first hand I played in that tournament. <laughs> That's always and, nice. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I mean that was that was amazing. Probably got me hooked on playing uh, super high rollers. I'd say a little bit from that uh, that success. Um, but yeah, that was the first time that they held a big high stakes tournament like that at the World Series Europe, and so they didn't make it a bracelet event that year. Well, which... what's particularly brutal is that the year before you had won a side event at the World Series of Poker Europe, and they also didn't give you a bracelet for that one. Right. Right. I mean, it just seems like a conspiracy to keep you out of the Triple Crown, you know? It uh, it basically is. I'm convinced of that at this point. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't know how many top tens I have without getting one now, but I actually looked up the number at some point recently, and it was even worse than I thought it was. So. Oh, like as far as your, your final tables at the series? Yeah, like top ten. It was, you know, one of the sites I was able to look up like my top 10 finishes in World Series events or something was a stat that was easily available and I was like whoa really it's it's that many like god damn <laughs> okay let's let's go through them uh t- <laughs> 2011 you finished runner-up in World Series of Europe 2013 you had a fifth 2014 you had a second again 2016 you had a second again um I mean there's no other way to say this I mean how badly do you want a bracelet do you feel like it's a monkey on your back. Uh, what What do you think? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think you know. At the end of the day, the World Series tournaments are the same as other tournaments. Uh, it doesn't really matter to me that much which which series I happen to have my successes in. But it is something that I would just like to like to do, just to you know, kind of have it done, <laughs> have it yeah. done with. It's gotten a little bit annoying at this point that I keep getting second or third or fourth or whatever. I uh, would like to just get that one done with. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, I don't value the bracelet that highly. Um, but it is certainly something that just because of the way it's gone has gotten frustrating, and I, and I would like to tick off. Yeah, it's, it's happened to some uh, some guys in recent uh, years. Stevie Chidwick for a while had it on, then he got... Um, got rid of it a couple years ago. Jason Kuhn got it off. But then you got guys like Helmius. Last night, he wins his 16th bracelet. I think he won $84,000 in that event. But you can't get one for your $1.3 million score? I'm just <laughs> exactly. saying. Yeah. Just it's, saying. It's frustrating, for sure. Let's get Mike Watson an honorary bracelet. <laughs> a lifetime achievement bracelet for all of his... Uh, his uh, discredited wins. All right, and then, of course, the third part of the Triple Crown is the PCA main event, which you won in 2016 
for seven hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. Um, how'd that one feel? Yeah, that one was amazing. Um, it had been, you know, nine years, I guess, since I'd won a big main event. You don't expect, obviously, I learned to win big main events that often. There's only so many that you can play in a given year, but uh, that that was pretty. It was pretty special um, to just do it again and to win there, you know, where, where it had started with Steve, um, you know, where Timex had almost nearly won, I think, the year. I think he got second the year before, two years before. Uh, so there's a lot of history there. Tournament that, you know, I've been playing for, for so many years. Uh, it felt kind of like fitting, kind of special in a way that that would be the one that I would win. Uh, and, yeah, just... I think I could appreciate it a little bit more in some ways too. You know, when I won the WPT at Bellagio back in 2008, I mean, I was just so completely like nervous, like didn't know what was going on, like just trying to sort of like stay calm and get through this experience and not screw it up. Um, and you always kind of feel, or at least I always kind of feel like that a little bit when I'm at a, a big final table. But I think this time with all that context of the, the past decade, I was able to really appreciate you know, how special it was and uh, to maybe enjoy it a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, a lot of players, they feel comfortable at a certain venue or property and they tend to do well. I'm looking at your top scores and it's all over the place and all over the globe, really. I mean, obviously Vegas is your top score. Then you have World Series Europe, Monte Carlo, the Bahamas, Triton, which looks like, okay, that was Hong, so that was Macau. Barcelona, then you have London, Aussie Millions. Uh, I mean, you're yeah, you're a world traveler at this point. Is that a big part of how you set your schedule? Yeah, I mean, the tournaments that I like to play are the ones that you know I know are going to have great fields, or the ones that are going to be in really cool cities, really cool places uh, to visit. And, and often they go hand in hand. You know, often the tournaments that are in really great places to visit are the ones that attract the most people. Uh, so that makes it easy. But yeah, I mean, all the places you mentioned, like I, I love playing in the Bahamas for sure. I know some people, you know, give the Atlantis a, a hard time or whatever, but I've <laughs> really liked, uh, like staying there. Uh, I think it's a you know, great resort. Hey, uh, when you grow up in, in Newfoundland, that's warm to you, right? January in the Bahamas is fine. <laughs> oh yeah, of course, of course. Like our summer. <laughs> That's right. What what, um, what, yeah. what does it top out in Newfoundland? What temperature does it top? What temperature does it top out at? Oh, I mean, you might get like one or two days a year that it hits like close to thirty Celsius, which would be what, like eighty-five, I guess. Okay. Yeah. So never hot. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, yeah, I mean, you get. 86. Any day where it's in yeah. the seventies in the summer, you're you're happy for sure. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Okay. Um. So let's. Sorry, I, I cut you off your thought there, and I, I can't remember what we were talking about. Um. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think I was just going to talk about. Yeah, let's just. Uh, we can just move on. Yeah, just talking about some of the places I traveled, but that's all right. Yeah, that's what we we're talking about. Yeah. So yeah, you set your schedule up. Um. You know, obviously to find value and you know spots where you're. Your RI will be good, but, you know, also, you, you want to see some spots, right? For sure. Yeah, I'm not a, a great tourist, um, but <laughs> I've definitely uh, 
And if it wasn't for poker, I definitely, I don't think I would have ever traveled nearly as much, but it's something I've come to really enjoy, to be sure. Uh, you know, visiting all these different places, cool cities around the world, um, just getting to experience, you know, different cultures, different, uh, you know, different everything. Uh, it's something I've really enjoyed about the, the poker, the travel lifestyle, and uh, not, yeah, not something I would have expected to be doing. All right, what's your favorite spot that you've been to for poker, and what's one spot that's still on your bucket list? So my favorite spot would definitely be uh, Melbourne for the Aussie Millions, a crown there, uh, especially, you know, where it's in their summer. So many of the tournaments are, they're in resorts or places where it's their off-season, and they need something to sort of fill fill the space, fill the time. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but being in Melbourne in, in January, February is just like, it's amazing. You know, the, the tennis is on, like the city is just, just buzzing. Like it's, it's such a good time being down there. Uh, so that one's really special. I would definitely recommend if anyone's thinking about it to, to go check that out. Um, when it becomes possible to do so again, I guess. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that would be uh, probably my favorite, but then, you know, Barcelona, another one that's amazing where again, it's like a great city, like in summer. Um, just, yeah, absolutely had some great times there. And what's your bucket list one that you still haven't gotten to? Still haven't gotten to. Uh, let me think. There's. I feel like I've done a lot of them. Uh, I guess Sochi, there's a lot of tournaments there. I think that would be interesting. I've heard really good things about it. Um, and then I'm trying to remember. Maybe there's a... I would love to play in South America at some point if there was a big tournament down there because I still haven't visited South America at all. Um South Africa, I know they had some high rollers and stuff down there. That would have been cool. I kind of regret that I never made it. Uh, and then maybe certain places in Asia that I haven't been able to visit yet. Um, you know, the last two years have very treated you kindly for uh, online poker. Um, was When the pandemic hit, did you just make a hard switch right away to like just get into full-time grind mode? I mean, pretty much, yeah. There wasn't, like, a whole lot else to do, really, at that point. And, uh, and the online tournaments picked up pretty quickly. You know, it was like Tiger, had... There was Tiger King, I mean. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We had the Tiger King month, and then, and then I think it was, like, <laughs> Scoop, and then it was whatever else going on. And, uh, man, yeah, it, uh, it, it all escalated very quickly, I would say, around that point. Like, the, the stakes just got really big really fast, and... Uh, it kind of just took over, you know, there wasn't a whole lot else to do. It just, it made sense to just be at the computer playing a ton. Um, yeah, you have, you've had a lot of success. You're currently ranked number one on pocket fives for uh, everyone in Canada. And you're at an all-time high right now of third place um, worldwide. Uh, several million dollars won on GG Poker. I mean, how are these high rollers? Like, uh, are they just... Uh, ruthless are we talking about the best of the best playing these things or is there like some is there a reason why they're so popular is there some sort of like a businessman contingent that's that's juicing up the prize pool yeah i mean certainly especially at the beginning i think of the pandemic there was quite a lot of people who would not normally be paying playing online poker who you know that was the only game in town so they got in and uh in a lot of cases you know, they were, it was easier for them to sort of get involved on, on GG. 
uh, than maybe than some of the other sites. So, or at least in terms of playing at higher stakes. Um, so yeah, those those games were were quite good for a while. Um, I wouldn't say that they're always particularly soft or anything, especially uh, as you know the pandemic wore on. Uh, the games definitely tended to get a little bit tougher over time, but they have quite a lot of just like really big field high buy-in events, and those ones are always are always pretty great, I would say. Um, but the weekly stuff, you know, the norm, the stuff that's every Sunday, uh, has started to get quite a bit tougher. How much does your online game resemble your live game? Uh, yeah, I like to think it's basically the, the same. You know, I, I don't do a lot of stuff live where I'm trying to make a specific play um, on someone just based on, you know, like a live read or something like that. Like, that's not something that's going to factor too heavily in my game, maybe, compared to some other people. Uh, but certainly, I think, you know, playing live... The big advantage is that you get to you get to see people. You know who everyone is, and you're a little bit more uh, paying attention. You're able to sort of like see more hands. You know, I'm playing online. I'm usually playing a number of games at the same time. I can't really, you know, I'm I'm just trying to deal with the hands that I'm playing. I don't have time to watch hands that I'm not involved in. Uh, so you miss out on information. You get a lot better information reads on your opponents playing live, where you can definitely you know, try to find more spots to make a, an exploitive type play against, uh, against someone when you feel like you've got a better read on, on their tendencies or on some potential weaknesses in their game. Uh, online, it definitely feels a lot more like just trying to play, you know, really good, solid poker. And uh, at least until you get really deep in a tournament, you know, and that one table becomes, you know, most or all of your focus. So interesting you talked about that. Like, are you the type of player who le- tends to lean uh, more towards uh, playing too aggressively or too passively when you're, when you're going one way or the other? If your game's slightly off, which way is it going off? Um, I would say, like, certainly historically, I, I've been someone who always err or used to always err on the more conservative side. Uh, definitely would say I would have been too passive. Uh, when my game wasn't on in the past. Now, I think, like, maybe maybe I still have, like, a slight tendency that way, but I think I, you know, I, I find myself making mistakes both ways. Um, you know, it, it, it's, yeah, more just about trying to play, trying to play hands the best or trying to play hands the right way. And, uh, you know, mis- mistakes happen, obviously. You can't do it perfectly. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I'd like to think anyways that, you know, my mistakes or when my game is off, it's not in a super predictable way, hopefully. We have some rapid-fire questions to wrap this up, if you're ready. All right. Um, oh, what was the best shot you ever took? The best shot? I mean, it had to, I guess, be the Bellagio. You know, playing that 15K was a pretty big buy-in for me at the end of a summer where I'd gotten destroyed. <laughs> uh, hard to, yeah, hard to beat that one. So you just bought straight in? It wasn't a satellite situation? No, yeah, I just bought right in. Um, didn't really like sell any action or anything. We just just got in there, you know. <laughs> when you're young, you don't have to worry about these things as much. So, um, all right, along those lines, what was the worst shot you ever took? I mean, I think a lot of it was just playing uh, a lot of the high stakes PLO and stuff. I played high stakes PLO and high stakes mix. I was playing 
you know, like the big like full tilt games, for example, where it just wasn't particularly good at those games. Um, and probably was uh, kidding myself a little bit if I thought I was, uh, was winning in those games, even if there were some decent spots. Do you remember your biggest tournament punt? Um, yeah, I feel like, well, I guess the one that comes to mind right away is uh, a big short deck tournament um, on the bubble. A couple of years ago, I just uh, made a big play preflop in a situation where I had a ton of chips and, you know, would have been very comfortable at the final table and it ended up busting to the chip leader, um, you know, where I just like jammed in like, you know, just like a suited Broadway as a bluff and, and ran into aces and busted. Uh, that one really stung. That's uh, it's funny because it brings up my next two questions exactly. Uh, first one, I know that you've gotten into short deck. You said it was probably one of your better games. What do you think is more likely, that short deck sticks around and grows in popularity or that a new game emerges that people latch on to? Yeah, it's hard to see short deck getting too much bigger, I guess, at this point. I feel, uh, you know, like it's it's kind of like well-known enough throughout the poker community where if it was going to like really catch on and boom, that may have already happened at this point. I mean, we'll see, obviously, with things like Triton making it a lot more, more um, getting a lot more eyes on it. There's still maybe some time for it to happen, but, and I think it's a great game. Uh, for for gambling especially which could make it popular but i'm not sure that yeah there's that much more room left for it to get too much bigger uh in terms of a new game i mean it could certainly happen it's it's hard for a new game to to catch on though um you know you got to get so many people to buy in i do think short deck had a lot of advantages where it was very familiar it's two cards it's you know the rule adjustments are pretty simple you know the games that catch on tend to be ones that have pretty simple rules where people can learn quickly. Um, so, you know, I, I'd love to see some new games, but it feels like the games that are being made up are increasingly complicated, which will really make it difficult for them to become super popular. Right, right. I mean, even if it's a, ga- a side game like Chinese, where they're just putting variations on it, you know, um, or open face, or, or, you know, games where it's combining two, like Badusi and Badesi. Anyway, um, let's see here. Your second, okay, the second question that that leads me to is, I asked Joe Stapleton when he was on this podcast what his most embarrassing moment in poker broadcasting was, and he said it had to do with you. Do you you remember this? No, not well. What was your most embarrassing moment in poker or poker broadcasting? Uh, an embarrassing moment in poker as I definitely congratulated someone in cashing a super high roller that had bubbled. Um, <laughs> that was Mike Watson. That was pretty embarrassing. Mike Watson is going to be on this show very shortly. and I, I love Mike that. Watson. Yeah, he. Uh, that was really awkward. You don't remember this? I honestly don't even remember that. I, I have like some vague recollection that this happened, but uh, it might have been a situation too where I was just so tilted at the time that like, you know, my my recollection or memory of these things is not very strong. That uh, there's definitely that like, you know, whatever it is, ten fifteen minutes, however long it might last after after busting a big tournament where you're kind of tilted and you're not really processing things normally. 
<laughs> well, he'll be pleased to hear that you uh, don't remember it. Uh, and I'm glad to hear that he didn't put you on extra tilt. Uh, I guess it wasn't possible. <laughs> I mean, he um, may have put me on extra tilt in the moment, but it's not, yeah, it's not something I would hold a grudge over, of course. That's funny. Okay, so biggest pot you've ever won or lost? Your choice. Uh, well, pot, like cash game pot, I mean, obviously tournament-wise, it's as we've discussed, it was the Bellagio. Um, trying to think cash game pot-wise. I don't know if I have anything super memorable. Definitely have uh, played some big pots at uh, short deck lately. Um, well, what kind of stakes are we talking here? Yeah, I mean, some of the GG games, I've played like some 500 anti um, short deck, which is, you know, a really, really big game. Uh, but I can't remember a specific hand. I mean, you just, you know, it's a, such a stupid game. You're just all in pre-flop all the time. And <laughs> um, so it's not like super memorable, but, you know. Are we, I, talking, I are we talking like regular six-figure pots? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so I think the biggest pot I've won is, is probably around like a hundred K. I've never played like super crazy nosebleed stakes or anything like that. You know, probably like 501 K like blinds in like a Hold'em game would have been about, or PLO would have probably been about the highest I ever played. I definitely can recall that I won some, won and lost some hundred K pots when I was taking some shots at, at high stakes PLO that I was, you know, probably in over my head a little bit, but definitely, uh. Definitely was fun, anyways. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, uh, I don't remember any specific hands, though, honestly. I'm really bad at uh, remembering all these details, um, especially of cash game hands. What about the best swap or piece you've ever had of anybody? Uh, I mean, just like every time I swap with Sam Greenwood, basically. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, he's he's had some success. Yeah, I think specifically... The year that he won everything, he just kept swapping with me for some reason. And he just won everything, and I just never, you know, I think I had, like, no results that year or something. Um, so he ended up just paying me out, like, a pretty reasonable amount of money over the course of the year, you know? Like, I'm sure it was in, like, the low six figures or something like that. Um, wow. that's, that's great timing on the swap. <laughs> yeah, I just got, you know, the right time. Like, I think when he won the party poker, millions for, like, a million um in uh the was it in Punta Cana or wherever it was the Dominican had a piece of that one and then there was a few others like he went on that run where he had just like a bunch of like huge huge scores all in in one year and I think I had a small piece of a few of them what was your what is your most prized possession <laughs> uh, I'm not a big like possessions like owning things guy I guess you know like I've never bought like a ton of a crazy uh Things I guess I, I like the things that are that are very practical that I use every day. Um, you know, I I spend money on having like a really good computer setup, for example. Um, you know, good devices. Uh, I can't really think of one possession specifically though. I should probably reword that question to like, what would you save if you <laughs> if you had to run in and say something in a fire or something? But I guess people would just take the photo album almost every time. <laughs> Yeah, I, I definitely go for the computer or the phone or whatever. It's just too. It's oh yeah, whatever. Wh wherever the Bitcoin is stored on a flash drive, I'm guessing that's that's the first thing you gotta grab. <laughs> right, of course. Um, all right. What was your largest non-poker wager? 
I think it might have been on Mayweather when he fought Connor. Okay. Yeah. Uh, certainly was my biggest sports bet. I think I had some low to mid five figures or something on that one, but just you, uh, it just couldn't picked, lose, you know. Yeah, you picked the right side. I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. That was, <laughs> I don't like to do that, but that was one where I just felt very confidently that I was getting some free money. Um, so you're not a big sports better, pit better. What about prop better? Yeah, prop bets. I uh, I lost a few decent sized ones back in the day, and uh, kind of got out of that. Honestly, like when I started getting into poker, I, I loved all that stuff, and I was always trying to like get involved and gamble on everything. And then I just kind of found it like exhausting keeping track of all the stuff that you're gambling on all the time. You know, <laughs> it's all this like record keeping and like. Just trying to make sure that you you're always getting paid up for all these things it was uh it was exhausting so i had to cut some of that out i did do a lot of um like daily fantasy sports stuff for a while and had a few uh irresponsibly large uh weeks perhaps <laughs> there but uh you know i thought that was uh was business at the time so right right you had a system uh what was your worst job before poker Uh, I mean, I never had a terrible job at all, I guess. Uh, the jobs that I had before poker were, so I mentioned I had a research assistant thing at the university. I umpired baseball, like youth baseball. That's fun. Um, That's fun. Yeah, that was fun. Like, I That's don't know, fun that until was... you deal with the parents, I'm guessing. Right. I never had any, like, nightmare, you know, scenarios uh, there that made it, like, miserable. And I only did it one summer. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't really have, like, a, a bad job. I never was fortunate in that way that I, I never uh, never had to, to work any really terrible jobs just to sort of get, you know, a few, a few dollars. Uh, what would you pick if you could name the entertainment for the Super Bowl halftime show? Or the, the Canadian Football League? halftime show <laughs> the, Grey, the Grey Cup yeah. the Grey Cup I couldn't come great. up with a name I was yeah. trying to pull it I couldn't come up with a name um yeah I don't know I mean I guess like uh the weekend would be fun I think he's Canadian too so that would work well for uh I mean, for you, either one you have control here Mike you can put whatever you want up there and people have to listen to it <laughs> Yeah, you're, and you're trying to please them with like a reasonable choice. <laughs> it doesn't even have to be a guy. It, it could just be somebody like reading their their spoken word poetry or something like really bum people out if you wanted to. Maybe put a comedian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Put the. Uh, no, that's fine. You, one of you my put the weekend. That's fine. There, that'd be good. Everyone just enjoy. Enjoy watching me win all this money right now. That would be great. Oh, would be uh, good flex. A poker highlights package. <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> Who is your celebrity doppelganger? Or have people told you you look like anybody or growing up? Ah. Um, I don't know. I, I, I get confused with other poker players a bit. Um, okay. Okay. That's a cool one. Dylan Wilkerson and I used to have this issue where, like, someone would play with one of us and then think it was the other one, uh, which was okay. I could, I could see that. Me, but uh, 
anyways, I think we were wearing similar sweaters at the time, perhaps, as well, which was being problematic. Uh, Celebrity-wise, I don't know if I've ever really had someone... He wears a lot of sweaters. Yeah. Yeah, Dylan is known for sweaters. Okay, yeah, I can see it, but people would have to be very unfamiliar with you, I think. Uh, Yeah, it was was definitely... Oh, great, I don't know if I should tell this whole story, but the other great one that I have is um, I went to Martin Jacobson's final table when he won the World Series main event, and at his after party, <laughs> uh, Dan Heimiller was there for whatever reason. He was just around. <laughs> and, uh, and it was you know, pretty late, later in the night. There had been some celebrating going on, and uh, I was stuck in this five-minute conversation with Dan where... Uh, it became clear after about a minute that he, he thought I was Martin. <laughs> um, and, you know, was giving me some good life advice and things of that nature. And I was just like, you know what? Like, this is just too entertaining. I, I'm, I'm just going to let this go on and, like, see, see where this goes, you know? See, see what happens. Uh, and then after, you know, five minutes or so, I don't remember if he realized that I wasn't Martin or, like, there was some point where I spoke to him again, maybe later in the evening, and he was like, "Wait a minute, you're you're not him." <laughs> That's pretty so, funny. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how people do it. I'm like these people. Like, I don't really lift weights. I don't know how everyone keeps confusing me with people that that go to the gym regularly. But uh, okay, it's, it's flattering, anyways. Yeah, we've had Martin on the podcast. Super nice guy. I'm. I pulled up his photo here, and I totally see Martin. I get this one. If you brush your hair in a certain yeah. way. And and if you make that eyebrow thing that he does, where he gets his eyebrows real angry, you know what I mean? I think he, I think for yeah. sure you could pull this look off. I, yeah, I get we you. had like, I had a haircut that was kind of similar to his. His was was better, like it was a bit longer, more Euro, like polished. Mine, mine was, you know, not quite the same, but uh, we we sort of, I think, had like maybe some similar facial features and a haircut that was not entirely different at the time so it wasn't completely crazy you're forgiven mr high miller yeah he's, <laughs> he's not always noticing everything anyway all right um let's see here favorite album or favorite movie your choice uh favorite movie growing up was uh goodwill hunting so let's go with that oh how do you like them apples mm-hmm. all right um are you superstitious at all? I mean, a little bit. I try not to be, but it's, sometimes it's hard uh, to not have these thoughts come into your head. So, and I think I like. Uh, I think it's just like a fun thing to do, especially hanging around other gamblers or whatever. It, it's fun to to play at some of these superstitious things. So, uh, I wouldn't say I'm really superstitious, but it, it's something that I, you know, feel a little bit and, and enjoy uh, making remarks about. Is it like a ritualistic thing, like you knock the table when you're all in online or something, or touch the No, way? I don't have anything like that <laughs> serious or specific, but I definitely definitely like start to feel like, oh, you know, maybe if uh, I've done well a few times in a row and I, I was wearing a, you know, a certain shirt or something, I might be like, okay, this is my lucky shirt now, or, you know, hit, uh, hit sets of, like, the same pair a few times in a row or something like that, for example. And you're like, okay, sixes oh, yeah. are hot. Let's, let's go. <laughs> uh, uh, what was your longest poker session? Honestly, nothing too crazy. Uh, I just don't really function when I'm super, super tired. Uh, 
Like I like to the point where I can't stay awake and I have a bit of a reputation for that. So <laughs> I think I've tried, I think I played 24 hours or very close to 24 hours a couple times. Um, and just like by the end, I was just like a wreck. <laughs> um, That's so pretty I've good. Played. I've never come even close to that. Not even once. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this was more like when I was very young or like new to the game and, uh, you know, you hear all these stories. So you're like, well, I'm going to try this out, you know? Um, but honestly, yeah, it just doesn't work for me. What are you interested in that most people aren't? Ah. Well, yeah, I have a number of nerdy interests, I guess. Uh, I still, like I said, I played some chess when I was young, so that's still something I follow. Uh, I've always kind of like kept up with following like the competitive chess world. Um, into, yeah, a lot of uh, reading science fiction specifically uh, a lot lately. Um, but yeah, I don't know if any of these count as like being super niche, um, especially for poker players. Uh, we just have a few more questions and then I'll let you go. Uh, if you had a HUD that showed you three stats about any person you looked at in real life, what stats would you want it to show? Hmm. Well, I guess, yeah, the first one would probably be something like, you know, trustworthy or like, you know, is this a, something about their character in that way? You know, is this a good person? Is this someone that you can do business with that you can, you know, believe in? Um, you know, I guess net worth would be like a funny kind of like vain one just to, to actually know, you know, there's, especially in poker, there's everyone talks a big game, but you never actually know who's, who's killing All it. Right. Who's not. That would, would be, uh, it would let you, uh, pick lineups for your games better too. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So that would, uh, that could be fun. Um, and yeah, I don't know. What other things would you want to know about people? <laughs> yeah. Well, two works. Yeah. I think so as long as you, if you can guess some, if you can gauge someone's trustworthiness, I think uh, that's huge right off the bat. Mm-hmm. We end the podcast the same way every time with a question from the random question generator. Here we go. What food combination do you eat that makes others cringe? <laughs> oh man I feel yeah I would just kind of eat uh, whatever things together like I guess the biggest one I'd say is like I can eat any meal sort of any time of day you know like I have no issues having like a dinner type meal in the morning if that's what I'm just like feeling up to yeah um, but in terms of a specific combination yeah, I don't know like I feel like I would just like smash like sushi and pizza together, but that, I don't even know if that's that weird. Like that would just that just sounds delicious, you know. Oh, my mind went to like like a condiment on like a food that doesn't go together. Like oh, a I condiment. Put, okay. Like I put I put ketchup on my eggs, and some people think that's weird. Although right. some people like it, maybe that's you know I don't know. Yeah, I, I like hot sauce on my eggs quite a bit, but I don't feel like that's super weird. I don't know. No, that's just delicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. 
Anyway, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing the stories. Of course. Thanks for having me. That's it. That's the show. Thank you once again to Mike. You can find him on Twitter at Sir Watts. And you can also find us on Twitter at Card Player Media and also at Poker Stories. That's poker underscore stories. And if you like the show, please show your support by subscribing. Uh, and you can go the extra mile by leaving a rating and a review. And we will say thanks with a free digital subscription to Card Player Magazine. Just let us know you did so by sending us an email to pokerstories at cardplayer.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.